He gets sort of an arrow in the thigh, an arrow in the shoulder, sort of stumbles around, a mace to the chest, and then covered in boiling oil. Tis but a scratch! <laughs> and this is where we get Sahil's proposal to Brienne. He basically says, you're not the best looking girl in the world, but I can get over that when the lights are out. What do you reckon? This is the, this is the Beautiful South song, Perfect Ten, as though somebody's actually taken it seriously as good dating advice. <laughs> Imagining George sitting in his sitting in his room, hunched over his 1982 issue personal computer, his Apple One, pecking it out and going, "Shall I put it in now? No, I'll wait another book. They can wait." Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. Uh, we're looking at A Feast for Crows by George R. R. Martin. It's part eight of a ten-part series on this. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. And Dave, part eight. We've got through. A significant, I mean, this is a, I was just looking at it uh, like yesterday, and this is an absolutely massive book, isn't it? It is. In terms of of doorstop size. Yeah, and I sort of, I don't have much of a sense of that because I read it on a Kindle, and I do feel like that's a loss. Because time was when I read a book this size, I'd look back at it and be like, conquered that, you know, (laughs) climbed that mountain. (laughs) Yeah, but I've got sort of a, one of those... It's sort of the smallest size books you could get, you know, like, yeah. so it's like a, a digest size. Yeah. And when it's yeah. like that, they're just, it's almost as thick as it is. Sort of <laughs> it's a cube. Wide. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of a beast. Glorious. Um, and yeah, this, this week we're reading from a chapter about Cersei. No, no, we're reading from a chapter about Sam, which begins the cinnamon wind. <laughs> and we're reading as far as a chapter about Cersei. Yeah. Um, let me just check what he... Oh, which begins, Grandmaster Pycelle. Wicka wicka. Wicka wicka. Grandmaster Pycelle. I've missed him. Okay. I've missed him and his beats and his old school stylings. Well, he's still been sort of hanging around, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, King's yeah. Landing. He just hasn't really played much of a part in the in the story yet. Hopefully that's going to change. Yeah, Because um, he's everyone's favourite possible sort of house DJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the future. Right, okay, so Sam, he's on the cin- the Cinnamon Wind is the name of this ship that is he's, he's travelling on to Old Town. And um, it's basically him and a load of, like, a ragtag bunch of summer islanders, which seems like this sort of, uh, this Westerosi version of Africa, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, like, tiny. It's really yeah. weird that he's made this the kind of, like, the Africa simulacrum, because Africa's massive, and the <laughs> summer isles are, like, four very small islands, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, the the first thing we see here is that uh, Maester Eamon has now died and Sam's speaking at what effectively is a sort of makeshift funeral on the boat. Yeah. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a pretty sad moment, isn't it? And uh, he, he, was, yeah. he, he was, he wanted to make it to Old Town um, and that was the whole reason for taking him, but he just wasn't strong enough to survive the journey. Yeah, and you've got to say that this surprises nobody. You know, like mm. like Westeros is a dangerous enough place to travel around if you are, you know, fit and strong and armoured and able, quite apart from being a century old and blind. You know, like, mm. it was... Nah, not was not a smart... Jon Snow, tell you what, knows nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, and, uh, and speaking of knowing nothing, um, Eamon, uh, before he dies, we get one little bit of information from him, which mm. is... He believes that uh, Melisandre, the Red Woman, has got it wrong and that Stannis isn't this sort of saviour which was prophesied um, mm. uh, because the sword, this flaming sword, which he, he he has as proof, gives off light but not heat and it should give off both. And he yeah. says he thinks Daenerys is actually the, uh, the sort of the one, if you like, because he's heard about her in the dragons. Now, now. I, I don't know if because we're reading these obviously quite some distance apart uh, in in the world, but I, I don't know mm. if a few days ago you happened to hear from where you are the cry of victory and joy that issued forth from my lips when we started talking about the fucking master plot again. <laughs> I was so happy about this, and obviously George isn't going to do it in a way that's actually satisfying. He's going to have it recognised by somebody who's dying and who can't do anything about it. Yeah. Still and nonetheless, I was yeah. like, yes, get, it's get, a, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a polite nod towards the master plot, isn't it? Which is it is, good. yeah, that's it. But that's all I'm asking for, Matt. 
That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Instead of nine different characters I've never met before, go for a walk. Just a little bit of why should I give a shit. That's all I'm asking for, George. Yeah. And we're, what, what are we, 700 pages into this? <laughs> uh, just one other thing about Mace Roman. Uh, he obviously, it seems like a quite a nice sort of uh, respectful ceremony on the boat, um, especially considering it's a, largely a, a group of people who wouldn't really know him very well at all. But it says that these, like the Summer Islanders, respect, have a big thing about respecting the sort of elderly, mm. um, which I suppose is sort of echoes of things like cultures like Japan and places like that. And I suppose in uh, Africa, a lot of African cultures uh, do as well, don't they? Yeah, um, in um, fact, to the point where I think maybe you sort of kind of European, North American culture, which doesn't really value elderly people very much, is mm. is a very strange cultural outlier, I think, in terms of most of the places I've been and kind of people I've spoken to. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast just about why that is, couldn't we, really? But um, don't worry, we won't. We won't subject to it. But uh, I think it's an interesting issue. Um, but yeah, the thing is that once they do sort of perform this ceremony or just do a little sort of memorial service for him, they don't. I thought they were going to just sort of bury him at sea and chuck him overboard. Mm. Uh, but they they pickle him in a cask of rum. Yeah. Because he's going to be buried in Old Town, and I just thought that was so strange. Yeah, well, do you know, I read that as well, and my first response was like, "Oh, this is George being a bit over gothic," you know, because he is <laughs> he is given to a bit of over gothicity. He's he's not shy of a little bit of kind of overdoing it. But hmm. then I read, remembered that this is actually what happened to Napoleon. No, Nelson, not Napoleon. Nelson, is it? Admiral Lord Nelson. Yeah, he died at Waterloo. No, oh, bollocks, not Nelson. Sorry. Yeah, no, it is Nelson. Nelson, it is Admiral, Nelson. Admiral yeah, Lord yeah. Nelson, not at Waterloo though, at Trafalgar, yeah. and um, and they put him in a, a barrel of rum to bring him home, so that he could have a state funeral and so on, rather than just being buried at sea. Oh. Such was his kind of fame. So this actually happened. Yeah, I thought it was just George being really sort of Tim Burton about it, but no. Well, my first impression was, could they not have found a different sort of liquid? What a waste of good rum. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> what you use the ship's formaldehyde supply before you crack it on the good goose? <laughs> got like a cask that I've gone off of wine or something. Just sticking with that. Well, know, you, know. you know, I've always thought that probably what they called rum on board ship probably was just wine that had gone bad, rather than something that yeah. had been, you know, expertly aged in casks before being rolled onto <laughs> the ship. Doesn't strike me that they were that bothered about <laughs> what the men below decks actually got to drink. Oh no, we mustn't take this. No, I'm sorry. No, this year's vintage is just bloody appalling. Absolutely <laughs> not. I'll accept nothing less than a Chateau Neuf de Pape '89. <laughs> well, I'll say someone who does like the rum on board, and yeah. that's Sam. He gets his Whee. first taste of it. He gets his first taste of a few things on this uh, <laughs> in this chapter. Isn't it funny watching this character who we've seen like killing horrible zombies that everybody else just runs away from and stuff like that? Um, to like kind of go through adolescence backwards. Like he's done the sort of like man, you fight, you know, big battles, wars, things. Yeah. But he still hasn't done the thing where he gets a bit drunk or has sex. And I find yeah. that quite entertaining that it happened in that order. Yeah, and so both these things happen here. So he and Gilly uh, finally uh, sort of... It's been building for a while, this, hasn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, by, I say a while, sort of like three books. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, he's, he's not shy about hanging around with it, is he, George? <laughs> He'll make you yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the parallel with like, oh, I'm going to wait. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you just imagining George sitting in his sitting in his room, hunched over his 1982 issue personal computer, his Apple One, pecking it out and going, "Shall I put it in now? No, I'll wait another book. They can wait. Everybody, patience is really the light motif of this generation's consumption of media. I reckon they'll just hang around. That won't cost me very much." <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, to be fair, it's not exactly the scene we've all been waiting for. But um, anyway, no, it's I mean, that's though. true. But at the same time, it's been coming and mm. not at the same time, so to speak. So he has this fumble in the dark with Gilly and uh, he gets up the next morning and he feels really guilty because obviously he's broken his vows. Because yeah. um, as, as a member of the Night's Watch, he, 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 well, I mean, this is funny. Technically, as a member of the Night's Watch, he shouldn't have children. So, I mean, he hasn't technically broken his vow just yet. 
but uh, he's, mm. he's well on the way. <laughs> he's playing with fire. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I mean, but even within the Night's Watch, it's strange that he's taking his vow so seriously because there is there's basically a town within a day's ride of the wall full of prostitutes, yeah. which is which only exists because the men of the Night's Watch are there. You know, so it's yeah. all as with every vow in Westeros, it's a bit of kind of pantomime and a bit of nod and a wink sort of business. Yeah, and I love though with that the sort of everybody knows that that you, that's what the vow means you're not supposed to have sex but um they're like the people's constantly in the book just sort of try and justify well it's it's father no children and take no wives and you're not technically doing either <laughs> <laughs> um dearie me yeah. i tell you what this scene i i mean obviously you know it, it's a sex scene so great um but um when they did it in the TV series, they had they had Sam just right at the end of the scene. Just he just went, "Oh my!" And it was like the most nineteen fifties housewife expression of sexual joy I think you could possibly. Have done. <laughs> yeah, amazing. It was quite good actually. I thought it was quite. It actually made me laugh out loud. That yeah, yeah, the, well, and of course TV that's series. the point, isn't it? Because the rest yeah. of it is so utterly and relentlessly bleak. Yeah. Yeah, well, so the um, the so he so Sam feels really guilty, and the Summer Islanders on the boat, uh, in, especially these two uh, Zondo and Koja, uh, talk him round and say, you know, it's daft to be so het up about about sex anyway, and it's just another thing yeah. that is there to sort of, I don't know, it's, it's all tied up in the way they worship their gods and things like that. Yeah. Um, what, what did you make of this? This is our first introduction to the Summer Islanders, isn't it? What did you make of them? Um, I mean, it was interesting. At this point, it's fairly one note. But I did think that like this character explained her philosophy really well. And it does seem like the Summer Islanders are really sort of interesting uh, people. And we've come across a couple of them before, haven't we? Like, uh, Is it Jalabar Zoe? Yeah. He's, he's a Summer Islander. And... Um, yeah, so he's a he's a like exiled Summer Islander who's sort of hanging around King's Landing, hoping for someone to help him take his kingdom back, basically. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, in the TV series, there was also a sort of pirate king who was a Summer Islander as well, wasn't there? But I can't remember whether he was in the books or not. He was Saladasan. Like, yeah, yeah, Saladasan. Yeah, he's in them both, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's in the books. Yeah, oh, is yeah. he a Summer Islander? Yeah, oh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, series anyway. There was a mention of you know you're from the Summer Islands or something. You know, yeah. in the Summer Islands we do this. Right. Um, I dug it. You know, for, as a little little glimpse, it seems to be a life affirming culture, and there aren't very fucking many of those in, in a Song of Ice and Fire. So I'll take what I can get. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so we leave the uh, we leave the cinnamon wind to its travels, mm. and we go to King's Landing again, back with Cersei. Mm. Uh, the news is things are getting worse in the Reach, where the uh, Ironborn are still, you know, raving and pillaging and rampaging up and down the Manda unchecked because she's not allowed the um, Red Wayne fleet to go back to defend the home. Uh, it turns out this fleet is going back now because Dragonstone has fallen. Uh, they've taken it. Um, I, off camera. Gone. Again. Off camera. <laughs> well, I think this is... In the TV I series, think... I can understand it, but... Come on! Now, I remember when this was happening in the first book and uh, quite a few of Rob's battle scenes were off camera and yeah. the, the, defense, the defense I gave for that was, well, you can only have so many POV characters and <laughs> it just so happens that he doesn't have POV characters there. It gets harder to defend in this book because he seems to be throwing in new POV characters all over yeah, the place. Yeah, in the first book there were nine POV characters and Rob wasn't one of them, so fair enough. Mm. Was it with that stat we found the other days? By, by the next book, there will have been thirty-one POV characters, <laughs> which is to say, yeah. we get to see what happens to every character, and then what happens next to every character, and that's a thousand pages. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, the thing that does it does irritate me a bit. We didn't see this because um, in the next part we're going to be doing next week, um, there's clo- there's around twenty pages of Elaine and sweet robin making the way down the mountain and oh my goodness it's hard going you're just thinking (laughs) if you had to have one chapter could we not just got in the head of like someone else and watched what happened to solaris but anyway yeah um so yeah dragonstone's been taken um but and solaris has led the sort of charge over the walls 
and he mm. is now mortally, he seems mortally wounded and dying, and Cersei takes great pleasure in sort of explaining this to Marjorie when um, when she goes to see her. God, this is, is pretty a vicious, hateful woman sometimes, isn't she, Cersei? My yeah. word. Yeah, because she absolutely revels in this, isn't she? And yeah. sort of going into the details. Yeah. Um, which is, again, yeah, if you, you yeah. can feel just how... It really does help... It really does make you feel that real sort of prick of hatred for, for Cersei again. Yeah, having having previously, you know, gained a greater understanding of why, you know, how, mm. how she was so brutalised in her marriage to Robert. You know, that was the last time we saw Cersei. And then this time out, she's back to being totally hateful. You know, George, I think, doesn't want us feeling any too much sympathy for any character for any length of time it would yeah. seem yeah now the Solorus he's obviously um, been grievously wounded he's, he's led this heroic charge over the walls it's all grand and exciting yeah. um, but the way the way it's described it did it, it did almost seem a little comic to me how he <laughs> got so many injuries it was almost like one of those cartoons where they're stumbling from injury to injury because he gets sort of an arrow in the thigh an arrow in the shoulder, sort of stumbles around, a mace to the chest, and then covered in boiling oil. And you see where he's going, oh, oh, God. Out <laughs> the oil as well. <laughs> you can completely imagine him, can't you, just at the end of it. Tis but a scratch. <laughs> Come back here, I'll bite your knees off. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, it takes a certain kind of moxie to write a medieval battle novel or series of novels and then literally put in the Black Knight scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, that that's moxie, yeah. is what George has yeah. done there. I think this is why we could have done with sort of being there, mm-hmm. because the way it's described, it, does, it, does, it just sounds a bit strange to me. Yeah, um, yeah. Sort of, yeah, he got hit in the thigh and the shoulder, and then he carried on, and then he got a mace through his chest, and then he carried on. And I think it's the boiling oil. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, like, uh, someone, like, getting hit... In, like an arrow to the shoulder, stumbling forward, getting smacked with a maze as well, and then stumbling backwards and sort of knocking over a, a vat of boiling oil. It's in my raccoon wounds. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Um, uh, if you if you if you've not seen it, there's a Family Guy episode where that kind of thing happens. And, he, yeah. and uh, Peter Griffin gets attacked by a raccoon, and then he sort of stumbles into an outhouse and it falls over. <laughs> just hear him inside going, it's everywhere. It's in my raccoon. <laughs> it felt a and bit like it that. It does please me to imagine. Now I'm going to go back and read all of Sir Loris's scenes with Peter Griffin's <laughs> voice, and I think that's going to be very, very pleasing. Yeah. Um, the, the good news doesn't, doesn't last for Cersei. Um, she gets another head, um, another dwarf's head delivered to her. And she's, she's still got this hit out on Tyrion, and um, or indeed on anybody shorter than five foot or four foot one in the entire it, kingdom. It appears so. Yeah, this is another head. It isn't Tyrion, uh, and does she? I think she chops off the guy's nose who who's brought him to her. Just just um, because. Yeah, it's, I mean. It's a, I tell you what I think, the more I see Cersei, Cersei the administrator, which is what we've got now, right? Cersei actually trying to run a country. Mm. Um, The more I begin to think that, like, there are worse management styles than that of David Brent. Do you know what I mean? Like, that that kind of, of the office in the UK and the US kind of mocks a certain mode of management. and, And, you know, fair enough. And everybody's had a manager like that and nobody likes him. But there are worse options in the world. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this this whole this whole chapter of Cersei is just uh, one of those ones. I mean, as we said with her explaining to Marjorie, it's a lot of sort of character base, isn't it? Just um, for yeah. some reason, he's really ramping up the hatred for her again from the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quite know why. And yeah, her, her general management. I mean, there's. She sits and listens to these petitions. It turns out around 100 knights have joined this faith militant. So that sect is getting stronger, which she seems to have created and not really thought about the consequences. Um, there's some disagreement over whorehouses. As, oh, they're having a big disagreement about whorehouses in the in the city mm. because they want to sort of 
closed them all down now. And she's very much... I mean, in the series, she just says, yeah, fine, do what you want. And then yeah. she's very, she's at least aware that they do bring in a lot of money. <laughs> so she's like, no, they're staying open. Uh, we need the money. Yeah. <laughs> I quite so. liked that. Like, yeah, all very well and good, but let's remain clear here about what our aims are. The money, right? You're just... just <laughs> but, but again, this just seems so completely stupid. You know, hey, you religious fundamentalist remember you work primarily for me and for my benefit right what do you mean no what do you mean fundamentalist doesn't mean that i well i'm shocked shocked you know this is enormously kind of uh naive of cersei i think um especially given the the history of this particular group yeah uh it looks like uh this so lord rosby this guy who has been uh uh, coughing up blood into a handkerchief for a while. It's getting even clearer now that he's dying. Mm. And, I mean, this has been happening for for months and months, it seems. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, Cersei straight away is moving towards the it must be a plot, somebody's having him killed. It's oh. some kind of poison. Uh, it's just paranoia at every turn here, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Once again, Cersei's primary way of dealing with the world is to say, A plot! A plot! <laughs> and have like 12 people killed yeah As she gets this bit of uh, another little rebellion from Tommen Tommen, Tommen increasingly is sort of testing the boundaries of what he can get away with with his mum and, and I don't know, I, to be honest actually it's more about she just keeps pushing him too far with things she demands of him doesn't she Yeah. even she... this really pliable child yeah yeah, and, you know, if she's no longer got Tommen on side, I think she should be, you know, have, sitting down and having a word with herself. Yeah. You know? The punishment the punishments he hands out to him here for sort of speaking back to her is he's got to... He, this is the thing that they had in the Middle Ages, that you have a whipping boy. It's where the phrase yeah. whipping boy comes from, yeah. which is where you can't sort of, you know, strike the, the king for uh, for misbehaving when he's a child. So you get this little boy to be his friend, and then you whip the boy if yeah. uh, if the king disbe- uh, misbehaves. And this time she said, right, Tommen's got to whip Pate, who's his whipping boy. And if he doesn't, they're going to remove Pate's tongue. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, just... I, uh, unbelievable. It do, I mean, do, really, like I said, it really does feel like this chapter, George Martin thought, I am going to lay this on thick now. You are going to hate Cersei by the end of this chapter. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Which which makes me think that maybe something interesting is going to happen to Cersei before the end of the book. On the other hand, mm. me and George have been down this road before. Hmm. Yeah. Now, there's a, we do find a bit more about this prophecy, though, as well, uh, and this memory that Cersei had when she, as a child, uh, and two other girls went to this uh, sort of woods witch called Maggie the Frog, Um to sort of get the fortunes told. And she was given sort of three sort of clues to her future. Mm. Uh, she, was, she, was, she was basically allowed to ask three questions, wasn't she? And she, she asked one, which was, when will I wed the prince? Because uh, she thought she was going to uh, marry Prince Rhaegar. Yeah. And the answer was, never, you will wed the king. And she was like, oh, okay. It means I'll be marrying him once he's been made king. Yeah. Um, and then she says, when will I be, will I be queen? And she says, she'll be queen until one younger and more beautiful casts you down and takes all your whole dear bloody hell so we realize so this is why there's the the paranoia over marjorie i suppose yeah 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 um and also she asks will will she have children um and the response is 16 for him and three for you as in, mm. basically where the king and I have children 16 for him three for you mm. gold and gold will be their crowns and gold will be their shrouds um, yeah, which again, so this is, I suppose, why she's so terrified of, of Tommen being killed and Marcella, mm-hmm. especially after what happens to Joffrey. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other part of this uh, prophecy is about the Valonqar, which is, a, uh, I think it's old or high Valyrian for little brother. Yeah. Um, and basically she's, she's, it's the prophecy is that she's going to die when the Valonqar wraps his hands around her throat. Mm. Uh, which which again shows her um, why she hates Tyrion so much and uh, you know assumes that he's going to be the person to kill her unless she does something about it. Yeah, 
Uh, and and this all kind of explains a lot of stuff, right? But, hmm. um, like, <laughs> yeah, it, it it all feels a little bit like. Let me explain to you why my character's been crazy for three books. You know, again, mm. like it's uh, this is interesting. This thread that I've kind of I, I don't know. I perhaps have become too preoccupied with it, but all the way through, we keep having moments where we're like, "Oh, all oh, right, okay, yeah, that explains everything." George, thanks. There's a lot mm. of kind of there's a lot of uh, what do you call it retconning, like just mm. cha- like oh yeah, and then she was always like this because of this. Never mentioned it before though. Never mind. Eh? <clears throat> Moving on. <laughs> Nothing to see here, you know. Yeah, do you think some of that is because this book is the first time we've actually been in Cersei's head, and yeah. and and it's not like yeah, yeah. It, it isn't the kind of thing she's ever going to discuss with anybody. So yeah. the only way you'll ever get to know it is if you're in her head. Yeah, yeah. But then again, I mean, I mean, clearly George has different priorities to me, and that's fine because it's his his book. Um, mm. But like for me, I'm like, well, if you know, if the story required us to be inside Cersei's head why haven't we been there since the beginning you know what i mean like mm. i i used to feel like this was a really great disciplined piece of storytelling you know like big but manageable and now i just feel like it's kind of sprawled out of control yeah i'm not sure the first book would benefit from having chapters in cersei's head though because in the first book the one of the interesting tensions is cersei's this unpredictable enemy of ned mm. and you don't know what she, you don't know what she's capable of really or where she's going next and if you had chapters of her thinking things through i think that a lot of that tension had removed and a lot of the surprises and the shocking moments had, had been pulled away from the book yeah that's true that's true and that's a strong argument i suppose um yeah i don't know it's just this and brienne you know the the brienne thing like explaining all mm. of this stuff that forms her her personality just feels a little bit like oh okay like yeah. it wasn't stuff that I was crying out to know, so I don't really feel the benefit of hearing it. But you know, mm-hmm. um, th- there is a point about this prophecy, which um, one of these prophecies, which th- there's another way of looking at it. Uh, one of the sort of things that the the uh, Woods Witch says mm. that could change your expectations for the future. I'm actually we've never done this before. I'm going to save that till the end because it's it's <laughs> such a sort of new way of looking at it that it could. It, if, if you don't, you know, it could be seen as a bit of as a spoiler. So we'll talk about this. I will put a pin in it. All right. And All right. Uh, at the end, we will we will mention this. But remind me to go back to it. Yeah, yeah. Because definitely. it's something yeah. that I want to get your thoughts on. Yeah. But I do think some people may feel we've let them down a bit if we just spring it on them here. So <laughs> okay, that's very uh, that's very considerate of you. That's all right. <laughs> um, oh, the, the other thing, which this is the the other little bit about the prophecy, which I think gives you the reason why Cersei's taking it so seriously is one of the girl that's with her um, who's called Melira. She's mm. got this crush on Jamie, and she says, oh, will I marry Jamie?" And the uh, this witch says, uh, no, um, you'll die tonight. And she says the smell of death's on you already, and you're yeah. going to die tonight. Yeah. And it turns out that she did die that evening. She fell down a well, it turns out. As you um, do. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, the, the other little bit at the end of this chapter is uh, Cersei's now gets to the stage where she's asking a couple of the sort of wiser people, like uh, Grandmaster Pycelle and um, I think Kyburn, or maybe she asks Kyburn later on, mm. um, about interpreting this prophecy. Uh, Pycelle says, you know, some doors are best left closed, as in, you know, I wouldn't recommend you get to... You know, yeah. you deal with things like that. Yeah. And also, um, Maggie the Frog um, sounds like a westernized version of May Guy, which uh, is the, yeah. if you remember that, yeah. the, the woman who, who sort of who brought Khal Drogo back from the dead over with Daenerys. Yeah. She was a May Guy. And it's yeah. this uh, these people that have a very close connection with blood magic. Yeah. And in the, these prophecies, she sort of, the witch tasted a bit of Cersei's blood before she gave the prophecy. So yeah, yeah. this is all. This is. I think this is supposed to give us the impression that this is the kind of magic in Westeros that isn't bullshit. You know, because yeah. there's two kinds, isn't there? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's the kind that you get by waving your hands around and being like Darren Brown, and there's the kind yeah. where some shit's going down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at the end, uh, we just uh, get a bit of advancement in Cersei's plan for Marjorie. She wants to find some way of taking Marjorie out of the picture, killing her, basically. 
um, and she thinks the only way she can really do it is now. Now she's 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 separated Dolores from her, so most of her protection's going. She needs to create some kind of treason. Yeah, and obviously the the Kesselback blacks were going to be the ones to do that with the sort of scandal over sleeping with her, but it's not sort of happened yet. Can she move things forward? And it just gives us a little a little clue that maybe she's thinking of speeding this process up now. Yeah, yeah. Shall we move on? Yeah. To Brienne. Oh, Brienne. Uh, yeah. It's another cheery Brienne chapter as we join her <laughs> as she's making her way through a lot of corpses which are hanging from trees with uh, a lot of salt in, uh, sort of stuffed in the mouths. Turns out these are the guys who raided the salt pans, or what's left of them. And it looks like... Um, it basically looks like Lord Berwick and the sort of Brotherhood Without Banners have, yeah. have come through here and have started meeting out a bit of justice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once again, once again, you have to rely on the outlaws to get anything done in this book. Yeah. I, I like this little exchange between Sir Hyle Hunt and the Septon Maribold as well, where mm. they go and sort of past these corpses and the Septon rather sort of, you know, superstitiously says, you know, let's, let's pick up the pace because uh, these guys were... These men were, you know, I think it was dark and dangerous men in life, and I doubt death will have improved them. <laughs> and Sir so, so, so Hyle says, you know, that's precisely the kind of people who are improved by death. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that is a good one-liner. And that's, yeah. but for that, if he'd have responded any other way, it would have been like type one horror movie stuff, wouldn't it? Yeah. We're moving yeah. past the graves, move quickly. They were evil in life and worse <laughs> in death. <laughs> and the one who like flippantly dismisses that is the one who gets killed first. He's the yeah, one who feels yeah. the uh, partially rotted hand of a zombie thrust up through the earth by his feet, grab him by the ankle, and start shaking him for spare change. That's that's what happens in a, in a horror movie. And I don't know. Uh, was I disappointed by that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's growing on me a little bit, Sahil, until this uh, conversation he has with Brienne in the uh, in the common room, which is coming up anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless you feel any sort of warmth towards any character. Yeah, because yeah. that's not what George is about, my friend. Um, the, the they reach this this old inn called the Clanking. It used to be called the Clanking Dragon because um, this guy sort of created a, a dragon by loads of like pieces of iron and hung it all up. Yeah. And whenever the wind blew, it all sort of clanked. I thought that was quite cool. Um, but it, it's another example this inn of just sort of what happens to common people when the when the wars start. Yeah. It's, it's changed hands about four or five times since then. Yeah. Because yeah. people kept keep, keep opening it and then getting killed. And once again, I bloody loved this thread. I really mm. did. Like just this whole idea of constantly reminding us of what actually, like that people matter, um, and that you know everyday experience is just completely lost when you when the only way of writing history is kings and battles. Um, mm. You know, I think that's. I just I loved that he put the time into this. Yeah. So they reach this in, and it's now been taken over by another group and it's basically full of children it's loads of just loads of orphans and a couple of the older ones are looking after the kids mm. uh, one of them it turns out is gendry remember him yeah <laughs> loved that come on back with the seed is strong remember yeah way back in the beginning yeah so i mean we last saw gendry he was saying he was going to stay with the Brotherhood without banners and yeah. be their armorer yeah. when Arya said, I'm, I'm leaving. So uh, it, it's strange seeing him here. And you think, I mean, immediately after seeing these guys being hung as well, these bodies on the way in, you're thinking, all oh, right, the Brotherhood's nearby. Um, and this is further evidence of that. Um, the, they sort of given a bed for the night and Brienne is basically, has got a plan now to get up early with Pod and just leave Sahail. Yeah. Septon Maribold sort of their paths are diverging from here. Yeah. Um and then they sort of they go down for dinner. It's just crazy I mean, you can imagine it's a house full of kids. It's basically like school dinners without the teachers. So it's just just mental. It's just crazy stuff going on. Kids are crawling along the tables, there's food going everywhere. Um at some point Septon Maribold at least tries to lead everyone in a bit of a grace and there's some kind of order but for the most part it's just pandemonium in, in the dining room yeah 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 um and uh hang on a minute where's it 
Oh yeah, this is where we get Sahil's proposal to Brienne. Uh, so Sahil's <laughs> by the fire later on, feeling he has and nothing it, to lose. <laughs> yeah, he ba- he basically says, "So you know, shall we get married?" And she's like, "What are you on about?" And he's like, "You know, you you're the heir to a well, you, you will be the heir to a and uh, a good castle if your brother dies, and um, you know it's worth a bet. You're not the best looking girl in the world, but oh, I can get over geez. that when the lights are out. What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful South song made flesh." Isn't it? It's um, what is that one? Um, Perfect ten. This is this this is the beautiful South song. Perfect ten, as though somebody's actually taken it seriously as good dating advice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Unsurprisingly, Brienne says uh, no thanks. In fact, I think he says says leave your door unlocked tonight, and I'll I'll come in and you know show you how much of a man I am. And uh, and she says do that, and you'll you'll leave basically without your penis. (laughs) I I did love that. I mean, I really loved that. Just the sight of, like... Because Brienne is quite a complicated character, and you can never quite be sure that she's going to survive what she experiences. But mm. um, but she was... This is legit badass territory, and I just love seeing that in a female character in a book like this. Yeah. Um, with that, she sort of drops Mike and leaves. Um, she she goes and gets some food from the table and decides to take it out to, to Gendry, uh, mm. who's out in the forge, because uh, there's a little forge attached to this this inn. She goes, she has this conversation with Gendry about where he's come from. He's very sullen, isn't he, Gendry? Now you can see his. Uh, yeah. He was always a bit moody as a character, but it's just he sort of turned it in himself a bit because of the things he's seen and the experiences he's had now. And he's very suspicious of everybody, including Brienne. Mm. Um, Brienne, sort of, from looking at him, works out that he's Robert's son. Just just um, like that. Yeah, I, I, I thought she needed a bit more than... She needed sort of... I don't know. She made that jump a bit quickly. Because yeah. even if he looks a bit like Robert... You wouldn't immediately think, oh, it must be one of his Ill- illegitimate children. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. It yeah, felt a bit... it, it does feel a bit of a, a jump for like for all the kind of all the milk that uh, George has got in the past out of characters not like sort of not seeing what's right in front of their faces and having you kind of yelling at the book in frustration. This is one place mm. where it's kind of almost a letdown because it happens in the other direction. And it's like, oh, oh, yeah, I mean, I suppose. All right. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're having this conversation, and it's interrupted by the sounds of horsemen approaching. And Gendry's like, you know, you'll find out who they are soon enough. So it seems that it's, you know, it's not a hard assumption to make that it's the Brotherhood Without Banners coming back. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brienne goes out into the sort of rain soaked evening uh night yeah. to see who it is and it isn't the brave companions it's it's sorry it isn't the brotherhood with their banners it's the brave companions or the bloody mummers or what's left of them <laughs> and yeah this and is this is horrific this this part isn't it you're it's, not wrong it's, shit kicks yeah. off like like almost to the point where i burn my fingers on the book i was like yeah ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what happened there yeah it was great. It's so tense. So these these sort of I think it's seven uh, bandits sort of ride up to the to the inn, um, mm. she, and one of them's wearing the the helmet of the hound. So it's the guys who've raided the salt pans, basically. Mm. I think they we, 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 it's Rorge and Bited. You know, two of those uh those t- two of those guys who were in the cage with Jake and Hagar with Arya way back when. That, that's who two of them are, and then there's yeah. some other sort of yeah, other yeah. bandits as well. Yeah, and it's this sort of standoff between there's basically Brienne and these seven guys, and then a lot of children. And yeah. Brienne's thinking, "Shit, I'm gonna have to at least do what I can, but um, I'm not gonna be able to take seven of them on." Yeah. Um. So there's this exchange between the guy in the hound's helmet, which is I think is Rog, and. Brienne. Brienne manages to sort of wind him up so much that he charges at her and this sort of brief fight begins and the others the other sort of bandits seem to be standing around and watching, which she's very grateful for. Yeah. Um and he kills she, she kills him mm. but as soon as she does, she gets knocked on her back by Biter. Um this who's this horrific I mean, 
he, he was a frightening and uh, character before when he was in a cage. Yeah. But the full sort of horror of just what he is comes across here, doesn't it? It's sort of this massive bloke with yeah. this rubbery, pale white, bald face, massive face, yeah. with fangs because he's sharpened his teeth to fangs. Bloody and here he basically knocks her on her back and starts eating her face. He sort of sinks yeah. his teeth into her flesh and rips her cheek off. And that's and the swallows end. it. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, and I was like, she. She sort of she fades to black as she can hear the sounds of battle starting. So she assumes that Sahil has sort of joined the fight now. Yeah, um, yeah, but, but yeah, mean, there's, but there's not a lot of hope there, is there? Really, there's this whole bunch of people who are professional bastards, and mm. against Sahil, a professional bastard, right? Who mm. I, it wouldn't surprise me very much if thirty seconds in, it wasn't like, is she dead? All right, do you lads need somebody else with a sword? Because I've got a sword. You know, like, there's not exactly a deep connection between them, is there? No. I mean, do, do you think Brienne's dead here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly thought so. When I got to the end of this chapter, I was like, well, f- fuck. And it's interesting mm. that it still had that effect on me, because the TV series pulls this sort of shit all the time. Um, <laughs> but the book doesn't so much. So um, so I was like, oh, fucking hell. All right. Yeah. <laughs> And it happened so quickly as well. It was like three pages, and she's dead. And I was like, oh, "Well, wow. um, I, mean, I suppose it, it, it can happen, can't it?" In this book, absolutely, and, yeah, yeah. I suppose one of the points the series makes is that you're never far away from from death. From death and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, the way she goes as well. Yeah, yeah. Horrible, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's the. To be honest, it's the. I found this probably the most horrific part of the series so far. It's just the thought of this guy, like, literally eating her alive. Mm. Um, horrendous. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, move away from that to, to Jamie, um, the old uh, partner in crime of Brienne from back in the day. Yeah. He's up at the Blackwater. No, he's not, sorry. He's, he's up at the uh, Riverlands. Yeah. Uh, over at Riverrun. Yeah. yeah, speaking to the Blackfish, yeah. Um, so he he's trying to end this siege of Riverrun. And take the take the castle, take the city. Um, it's funny because he has this parley, um, so he, this discussion with the Blackfish, who's in charge of you know the the defence of Riverum, and there's a bit of a sort of I don't know sadness to it because the Blackfish was this guy who uh, Jamie always looked up to, and you feel that Jamie's a a little ashamed that he's sort of. The Blackfish hates him so much now and yeah. uh, thinks so little of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, he clearly doesn't trust Jamie. Yeah. Obviously, um, for good reason. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he's the, he's the, the, from the family that engineered the Red Wedding, so... Yeah, know. yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it wasn't as if Jamie had the most fantastic reputation before then, was it? It wasn't like everybody was like, bloody hell, Jamie, Jamie Lannister did that? Killed the... Yeah. Well, I'll be fucked. Or, oh, the Lannisters, yeah. Can't trust those bastards. Yeah. I'm curious about J- the Jamie's motive here, even though it were in his head. Because uh, he's had this, he's taken this oath not to take up arms against the Starks or the Tullys. Yeah. So he, he doesn't want to fight them. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure he's, he's either sort of trying to get them to surrender and then let them get killed somewhere else so it's not blood in his hands yeah. or he just isn't thinking beyond this may be more likely he's not thinking beyond him not killing them and what happens next is just sort of is down the line yeah. the, the, the reason I ask about this is because he said one of those things he offers is look if you give if you sort of give up the castle I'll let you and your men leave but you'll have to hand in your armour your armour in your arms basically yeah. so you can't attack us yeah and and the blackfish sort of laughs and says, "Yeah, and I wonder how far we'll get before, unfortunately, some group of bandits possibly just hiding their Lannister <laughs> banners set upon us and kill us all." Yeah, and it, the blackfish is absolutely right. That totally would happen yeah. with or without Jamie's orders. Yeah, yeah. Um, what 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 do you think about Jamie here? How genuine is he in trying to sort of create a peace deal which works for everybody well he's going through this very strange thing isn't it which you could sort of liken to the the um the journey in like a bad 80s teen college drama where you know the idiot frat boy you know finds true love and uh, and changes the way he acts as a result um 
But instead of doing that, you know, in, in kind of like, you know, three easy scenes, he meets the beautiful cheerleader, he loves the beautiful cheerleader, she hates him, he changes his, you know, all of that. What's actually happened mm. is he's met Brienne, who is not a beautiful cheerleader, and then been totally struck by how good she is at keeping oaths and been mm. like, and she is everything that he's not. And he she, he knows that she's a far better knight than he will ever be. And he's been born to this station and she'll never achieve it. But still, she has him beat on flat feet um, mm. as a kind of student of honor and everything that knighthood should be. So t- I think he's sincere here, but I think he's kind of... It's the sort of thing where, you know, like, I think he's trying it on for size, trying mm. honour on for size. But the problem is that he's been too good at dishonour for such a long time that yeah. when it turns out nobody trusts him to be honourable, with very good reason, he's just going to be like, oh, fuck it then, what's the point? And go back mm. to dishonourable behaviour the same way he has done all the way through the rest of the books. So I think this is, this is actually a really interesting little wrinkle. I don't think it's going to turn out well. I think it's going to turn out badly for him, in fact. Mm. But um, but it is a case, an interesting little, you know, little something. Yeah. How much of a defence can we make for Jamie in terms of his sort of honour and dishonour in the past? In, insofar as, you know... Okay, his family have done some pretty bloody ropey things. Yeah. But what he was directly involved in, there's the Kingslayer thing, which has been, he's been beaten over the head with for for years. Yeah. But we know that, to be honest, there were, there were sort of, if you're ever going to kill your king, that, that would have been king. sort of yeah. the case for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the guy was about to burn the entire city to the ground, so he killed him. Mm. Um, beyond that, I can't think of many things that he has done that are particularly dishonourable, but I can think of quite a few examples that could be construed as being dishonourable. So, you know, he was he was released by Caitlin to, to on condition that the two girls, two Stark girls, were returned. Yeah. He got out and didn't bring the Stark girls back. Yeah, we know from being in his head that that kind of isn't his fault. But again, it just looks like another reason not to trust the guy. Yeah, I just wonder, really, his character isn't particularly untrustworthy through the book. Um, but he just has this reputation which he can't shake. Yeah, although I think that's also, you know, you do choose what you stick with, right? I mean, we've seen Brienne has put her life in danger so many times and is probably dead now because yeah. because of her unflinching devotion to the vow that she made. And, um, and, and you know, you have to contrast that with Jamie who got out and was like, oh, circumstances conspired. Anyway, I'm off back to the place where I've got all the gold and all the uh, wine and all the food and where <laughs> yeah. I can go and shag my sister. You know, um, that's that was his kind of, that was his idea of sticking to a vow. It was almost a yeah. kind of in, like absurd entitlement piece of it where, yeah. you know, almost like, surely you can't mean that I should put myself in danger for these vows. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's just the kind of thing that knights say. And, you know, he's never really had to weigh the cost of his honour. And mm. so so I think, I mean, it, he might be, he might not be as much of a, like a total, like, bad-to-the-bone bastard that people assume he is. But um, I do think actually the, the the outcome is almost the same if he, he kind yeah. of plays with honor and then leaves it by the wayside that's the same as yeah. not having any honor to begin with in fact it's worse because you make vows and make people believe that you're going to heap them and then you abandon them um, yeah so no i mm, yeah no i don't I, I mean i understand what you're saying and he's definitely not you know he's he's certainly more sympathetic than cersei um but i mean i, I think there's something interesting in this as well about how you know what um uh jenna lannister said last time or Frey or whatever her married name is uh where she was mm. like you know oh it's not you who's tywin's real son it's Tyrion. um yeah. and i thought that was that was just incredibly true um yeah. you know uh he's just not actually that smart actually he's, no. he's just not that he's just not that clever or good at stuff but he's been born yeah. to it and he's been strong enough and nobody's ever actually ever asked him if he's clever. Who gives a shit? He's a Lannister, he's rich and he can swing a sword, you know? Yeah, I suppose there are two points about that. One is, yeah, one of the things about him allowing this reputation as a, as untrustworthy and, uh, you know, dishonourable to develop is because another part of him is his 
massive arrogance and yeah. refusal to ever explain himself. You know, he's never given any case for the defense because he thinks, why should I? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Lannister and I do this and that and people can think what they want of me, but I'm never gonna, mm. I'm never gonna justify anything I do. I just do what I do. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I suppose it's an interesting question you raised there about abandoning a vow. Mm. And I suppose how far you are, you know, when you become pragmatic about that. Uh, he, the reason yeah. he isn't sort of still searching for Aya in Sansa, one of the large reasons, he just genuinely thinks there's no way he's ever going to find them. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, they're almost certainly both dead. Yeah. And how long do you devote your life to, I mean, would he, would you think Brienne would be justified in continuing to search for the next five years? Wasting her entire life searching for two people who are almost certainly dead? It's, you know, so is he, has he kind of, when is the when is the right moment to say right? I took this vote, but this yeah. is sort of it's just stupid to continue now because yeah. all hope of fulfilling it's gone. Yeah, I mean that's a strong argument, and and clearly I would be terrible at being a knight in this world because I would probably make that choice. But the point about Jamie is that he's made that pragmatic choice, but traded against it as though he he would never make such a choice. You know, mm. he he made a vow, old gods and the new, all of that sort of thing. And that sort of thing's supposed to stick with you for life, no matter what, you know? Um, mm. Which is precisely why you wouldn't catch me making such a bloody stupid vow in a war zone. You know, be like, let me, set me free, I'm a badass, I've got lots of money and I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> but obviously that's not the way that Catelyn Stark worked. Um, but, but still, you know, like that's, I, I still think... I still think that's a kind of, you know, the the standard that he wants to live up to, he is correct in saying that he has failed to live up to so far. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and he's he's sort of this conversation is an example another example of him sort of just feeling out maybe trying to be a better knight, isn't it? Mm. And yeah. he's getting I mean, you can tell he's a bit of a novice at it. He's getting sort of beaten down in every sort of aspect of this discussion with the blackfish. The blackfish just kicks him around the in terms of the in terms of the argument he just beats him down again and again and again doesn't he and mm-hmm. he's sort of shot back one-liners and his little um cutting aside so he just you can tell the blackfish is really just enjoying yeah. like bitterly enjoying humiliating this guy absolutely and he's got sort of nothing has he you know mm. the blackfish this is really the blackfish being like i am a badass and i will die hard and yeah. and in the middle of this, this is if, if the, if the his idea of levity is being able to humiliate an opposing commander for twenty minutes in conversation. Then great, yeah, you know that's yeah. that's about as good as it's ever going to get. Yeah, because Jamie basically ends up saying, you know, what terms do you want? Then I'm trying to offer you as much as I can here. And the blackfish basically says, "I'm not really interested in any terms because I don't trust you. I was just bored, so I thought <laughs> I'd come out and talk to you." <laughs> <laughs> which is great yeah um but yeah i mean that this is the problem that jamie has because if you if you universally mistrusted because of past actions you can't you can't discuss terms because no one's going to trust you yeah there's no point even offering anything because no one will believe that you'll actually follow through on it yeah yeah i mean Um, i definitely see the bind he's in but you know hmm. i feel i sort of feel like he's brought it on himself and he's had more than enough chances to be to do well yeah, you know. so it so it descends so it turns into Plan B. So Jamie leaves, goes back to the sort of main tent, and holds a war council because mm. they're going to have to take this place by force now. Yeah, the various options put for Jamie's basically trying to be, be Tywin now, sitting by. He says, you know, he lets his commanders speak first because that's what Tywin used to do, and he's just again he's trying to this time he's trying to I don't know just sort of wear the armor of his father if you like. Um, yeah. Some of the plans are put forward. There's just storm the gates. There's a stealth attack. There's an assassination attempt on the Blackfish. It yeah. could be um, various other sort of semi-possible plans. But it all descends into this massive argument, mainly because uh, the sort of you've got the Freys and the Bannam, old Bannerman to the Tullys yeah. on the same side here, yeah. and they obviously still hate each other. This guy. Um, uh, it's, I think Lord Piper is there, and one of his sons was 
captured at the Red Wedding yeah. and he gets into an argument with a fray and it's all it almost ends up in a sort of duel, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and in the middle of it, you could almost see Jamie because Jamie's trying to play it cool. Jamie's trying to be his dad and just sit in the corner and let everybody talk and it just gets so enormously mm. out of hand so quickly. You can almost see him like kind of sitting there stroking his chin, watching it all yeah. go to shit and just in his head just saying, yeah, just wait him out. Just like Dad would. Just wait him out. Yeah. Just like Dad would. Just like Dad would. Clang, smash. How about thee, sir? Stab, <laughs> stab, kill. Just wait him out. Yeah. Just like Dad. Just like increasingly wild-eyed, but carefully just still stroking his chin the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and it's just a real image of how, how, true, how truly it was said that he's not Tywin's son, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it is because this doesn't this doesn't happen this wouldn't happen under Tywin. Mm. Because um to be honest, I think because for example Lord Piper would know that that would be, you know, the first word he utters like that, he'd be either out of the tent or beheaded. Mm. You know, Tywin would would crush it straight away. Yeah. And it's just Jamie doesn't quite have that presence and that fear factor, does he? Yeah. Um, well, because he's also trying to be a better person than Tywin was, and Tywin's whole power revolved around mm. being the most ruthless bastard in a world full of ruthless bastards. Yeah. So the, the so it breaks up this war council. They're not really decided anything. Uh, Jamie goes over to the Frey camp. Uh, Ryman Frey is the sort of the the eldest and the heir to uh, to the twins, mm. and this guy. We've not even seen him yet, and apparently at this point he's just in a tent uh, with a whore. Um, so Jamie thinks, right, I'll deal with you in a bit. Yeah. He goes to see Edmure, who's, if you remember, Edmure is uh, stuck on this gallows every day, waiting to die. Yeah. And it looks like Jamie's just going up there to execute him. He brings uh, Cyrillian Payne along with him, and uh, Edmure sort of sees him arrive and thinks, right, this is it, and gets ready to die. Yeah. And just before that happens uh, Sir Ryman Frey does appear and uh, and says you know this is my prisoner blah blah blah, blah. so <laughs> Jamie just actually is at least ruthless with him he sees how useless this guy is yeah. he punches him in the face and then says right you're dismissed you're gone get out uh, someone else can take over Yeah. and uh, and he can't believe it can he Ryman because because yeah. he's just his birthright it means that he's in charge and he can't believe that there's any elements of meritocracy in it at all. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Go away. I, I'm the... I'm a man. You know, this real sense of, like, ownership there, you know. Yeah. Uh, Jamie really does do a Tywin here with Edmure, though. So he cuts Edmure down and says, right, I'm not going to kill you. I'm sending you into Riverrun. I'm giving you, basically giving you back to <clears throat> your men for free. Yeah. But you've got to convince... Um, You've got to convince everyone to surrender. Yeah, and he and he says if you don't, and he gives this long list of threats, um, which the, the the key one being when your son's born, I'll send him to you with a trebuchet. I'll yeah. basically fire your baby boy over the walls with a trebuchet. Yeah, um, and he as it, when, when he says it, he thinks he's thinking to himself, God, that's that's cold. <laughs> but um, it's kind of like. It's a threat that has to be made, and because of his reputation, this is where his reputation as a ruthless, you know, honourless bastard uh, works in his favour. Because Edmure entirely believes it, mm. and he's like, "Right, I've got, you know, I've basically I've got no choice." Mm. What did you make of this? Well. I thought it set up something really interesting and i i kind of wanted to see how the rest of the the scene played out but and this was this was the end of the chapter though wasn't it yeah yeah so i was like oh ooh, ooh. <laughs> it's basically that summarizes my feeling about this and then and then yeah. we cut away from this and 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 then i looked and then i made the mistake of looking in the content the contents page and i was like Oh, for fuck's sake. Because <laughs> I don't think we go back to Jamie, do we, for the rest of the book? <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't looked in the content. So but... I, think, I think that's the case anyway. So I, I read this and I was like, wow, wicked, big river run, battle scene. Bring it the fuck on. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
It's not coming. It's not coming. <laughs> Forget it. Add it to the long growing list of things that aren't going to happen to entertain me in this novel. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think Ed Muir goes to Rifferun now and says, right, let's just defend the walls, you know, I'm back. Uh, okay, uncle, let's let's get it done. Or does he go back and say, look, um, we've been given some good terms here and I'd rather not see my baby boy chucked over the wall with the catapult, so let's surrender. Yeah. Well, which one? Which one does he? Which one? Which one would you pick in Edmure's position? There, that might be a better question. Well, I, I actually, what I would do is, I would say I'd go in and I'd probably like talk them all down and 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 avoid the sight of my infant son being dashed against the walls. Um, hmm. But that's why I would make a terrible lord in Westeros, and that's why Edmure makes a terrible lord in Westeros as well. Hmm. Um, you know, like I, I. My expectation is that that's exactly what Edmure will do, um, mm. because he's he's just a bit, he's not bad. He's just a bit soft. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and um, he's a bit human, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. All right, potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I think you're right. He is, he is in this world a bit soft, but being a bit soft in this world seems to be, i.e., not a monster. Yeah, exactly, um, and, and that's part of. I mean, that's part of the struggle that I'm having, if truth be told, with hmm. this book in general, is that I'm like, how many more books do I go on, like not sympathising with anybody, hmm. um, or increasing losing the sympathy I have for sympathetic characters and not acquiring any more sympathetic characters? You know, how long do I go on before that just becomes like, oh, all right then? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I, in terms of the you know the, the collection of POV characters we've got at the moment, the Jamie chapters are the ones that I like the most, mm. and I think it's because I quite you know I'm, I'm quite conflicted about Jamie, but I certainly don't hate him. Yeah, and uh, and I you know I like people like Ed Muir as well, and a couple of the other characters in it, and it seems I mean I like Brienne as well, but it just seems to be a constant just trudge through miserable and horrific circumstances up to a point where you end up getting your face bitten off and killed yeah um so i think the the jamie chapters are a lot better than pretty much most everything else in the book at the moment i agree i don't with know that. what you Be- thought because he's on this interesting journey right because he's in this mm. weird honor no honor violence no violence vows no vows because he's in that place and because we've been with him for a long time that is actually quite an interesting an interesting kind of vibe um, mm. and yeah, yeah, and I do find this interesting and gratifyingly, actually, I don't know what I was thinking before, but I've just looked on the, the, um, contents page and he has one more chapter before the end of the book. Ah, so maybe, maybe I'll get some closure on that. Ah. <laughs> right. Well, that's as far as we're going this week. Um, as ever, uh, if you like what you hear here and you want to, uh, get involved, uh, give us a couple of pointers about where we, things we've got right, things we've got, where we're going wrong, what you would have done in various characters' positions, send us an email, sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter, at sharkliveroil. Uh, thanks very much for downloading it and, uh, having a listen. Hope you're enjoying it. Next week, if you're reading along with us, we're going from the chapter about Cersei, which is the next one, which begins Grand Maester Pycell. And we're reading as far as... Spoiler alert. A chapter about Brienne. <gasps> Gasp! She She's lives! Back. Or, or, are we in a White Walker situation here? Remember, death isn't absolute in this novel. Has she been uh, resurrected somehow? Or is it a Beric situation? Ooh. Hello. Has, has, has someone done the old sort of Lord of Light on her ass? Ooh, dearie me. I do hope not. Well, we'll find out. and then. Uh, oh, no, we won't, actually. That's the start of the next, That's the next <laughs> of the, of part 10. Tune in the so, week after next, is what we're saying. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going, so we're going as far as Brienne, but no further for next week. Yeah. It's basically three chapters next week. It's one about Cersei, one about someone called the Princess in the Tower, and one about Elaine. Mm. So it's Cersei going mad some bollocks in dawn and <clears throat> basically 20 chapters of Elaine climbing down a mountain with sweet Robin. <laughs> uh, I'll say this, Dave, buckle up because I think this is, this is where Feast for Crows reaches its nadir. Oh, oh so, um, Matt, surely not. 
if you're if you're listening and you're a you know a really big George Martin fanboy and you don't like hearing criticism, then maybe <laughs> worth skipping part nine of Short Liver Oil's Look at a Feast for Crows because it might get I, I get the feeling it might get a savage. <laughs> But anyway, um, that would be for next week. Can we go any lower than we've already gone? I've questioned his characterization, his ability to plot out a whole series of novels, his decision in splitting A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons in half. I mean, I mean, I suppose I could start in on his dress sense if you want. Apart <laughs> from that, I well, like yeah, I've done but, it all. Maybe you fit rock bottom already. Um, <laughs> I, but you're 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 sighting up for the plunge, are you? You're getting ready for it. I would say at this stage I still quite like this book, yeah. but um, but I, I'm not sure I'm going to like this next three chapters because I, I can't see much in it that's going to grab me. But you know I have read them before as well, so <laughs> um, I'm kind of bracing myself. But like I say, buckle up. Um, things are darkest before the dawn. So uh, <laughs> is that a is that a pun, Matt? Did you just crack out a pun? Darkest before the dawn. A a uh, dawn. That'd only work if, like, heading over to Dawn to find out the latest machinations. Hang on, of hang on a minute, Ariana. let me just let me just have a look here. Are we bollocks? No, no, of course we're not. Of course we're not. <laughs> no, we are going. We are going to be there. But um, anyway, look, this is all for next week. Uh, get ready for next week. Uh, like I say, buckle up, uh, grit your teeth, and uh, and we'll we'll be reading the next three chapters of George Martin's A Feast for Crows, and. Um, until then, Dave, uh, Until good then, luck man. with it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Once more into the breach.